Good morning. Good morning. That that means sit down. Yes. Thank you. My turn to talk now. Let me take this opportunity to uh, congratulate the Orioles on uh, the fir- taking the th- first three games of this series out in uh, in Oakland. We also thank the Maryland Association of Cardiologists for sponsoring the bullpen, even if it is just as a means of drumming up business. It's fun to have a winning team, though, isn't it? So last week, Zach Lefebvre came and talked about how, as it has been put in a different way, there are two paths you can go by. The way of the flesh and the way of the spirit. Now, you may have noticed that in your translation of Romans, the word flesh may not appear except in the footnotes. If you're using the NIV, for example, you will find that Greek word flesh translated as sinful nature. And you will find, further complicating matters, that the word spirit is sometimes capitalized and is sometimes not. This is one of the places in Scripture that is especially obnoxious in this regard. Because not only is there a challenge in terms of translating from one language to another, there's a further challenge in that Paul is playing on the words here, and he is doing something that his Greek-speaking hearers would have followed very well. But if Paul had given a moment's thought to the idea that sometime somebody might need to read this in some language other than Greek, he might have had the good manners to render it differently. He did not, so this is what we have. Now, one of the reasons that you will find the passage that we are in today translated as it is, is that it's important that we avoid a very basic but a very easy misunderstanding. If we think about this distinction that Paul is drawing here, as uh, that Paul uses uh, referring to the flesh and the spirit, if we think of that as having to do somehow with the physical and the material, then we are going to completely miss Paul's point. All right, I'll say that again. So many of us have been uh, brought up, of course, to understand that there is the material, that which we can sense and taste and feel and touch, and then there is the spiritual, which is somehow beyond that or above that or, or interacted with in a different way. This division between matter and spirit, between flesh and spirit is something that comes from the Greek philosophical tradition. It is something that has deep roots in our Western culture, and it's something that in many ways can be very helpful to us, except not here at all. Because what Paul is talking about when he refers to the flesh is not the meat on our bones. He's not talking about that which is material, when Paul is talking about our flesh, the Greek sarks, he is talking about that which is of our mortal nature as it is 
under the curse, under the reality of the fallen human condition, right? Remember, God creates human beings. He creates us very good. We screw it up. As a result of this, God says, cursed now is the ground because of you. Everything breaks. Our relationship with, with the creation, our relationships with one another, relationships with our own conscience, our relationship with God, all of that is messed up by virtue of human sin. And so the life that we live in our bodies is now characterized by that brokenness in all of those dimensions. And we go through our lives in a broken world learning how to live in a state of brokenness. And so there's a sense in which it can be really useful to think about our flesh as our sinful nature, right? You, know, you, you Some of us have cars that tend to veer off to the left or the right. Mine tends to veer off to the right right about when I come to the drive-thru at McDonald's. So, you know... I've got, I'm sort of conditioned, that's the, that's my flesh, that is my sinful nature, my fallen inclination that wants to draw me in that direction. But that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the muscles and skin and so forth that's hanging on my skeleton. When Paul's talking about flesh, he's talking about our nature as weak fallen human beings. And when he's talking about the spirit, he is often, and I think usually, talking about the Holy Spirit, right? Again, this is one of the places where it is not helpful for us that the original text did not have capital letters in it. It wasn't for centuries later that we started having a distinction between capital and lowercase letters in Greek. There were both capital and lowercase, but you sort of picked one or the other and you wrote with them. So when we read the Greek word pneuma, or spirit, we have to discern whether that's supposed to be lowercase spirit or uppercase spirit, as in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we may remember from what we recite every time we take communion, our doctrinal statement, the Nicene Creed, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We worship the Holy Spirit as fully God. He is our Lord God, the Holy Spirit, But we also find the Spirit referred to as here in our text today as the Spirit of Christ. Makes sense. Christ is also God, fully God. We worship one Lord, Jesus Christ. But the Spirit is not an innovation, although the way in which we engage with the Spirit is relative to the beginning You'll recall in the very opening verses of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters. The Ruach Elohim, Spirit, same same obnoxious thing in Hebrew actually. The word Ruach means spirit. It can also mean wind. It can mean breath just like in Greek and also no capital letters. 
So the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters and God breathes the Spirit into the man which gives him life. And we even read about something that later on Paul refers to as spiritual gifts. We get these all the way back in Exodus. right? Remember that lovely stuff at the end of Exodus if you're you know, some of you people, you watch this, these interior design shows or you watch you know, Say Yes to the Dress or what's that annoying one that you guys watch with the caddy people designing clothing? Project Runner. Thank you. See? You know, if you dig that stuff, you're going to dig the second half of Exodus because that's, that's all, you know, interior design and designing garments for the priest. And, and here... Begin chapter 31, Yahweh says to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. I filled him with the Ruach Elohim, with skill, ability, and knowledge, and all kinds of crafts to make fabulous designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. This is not some new thing that just came on the scene later on. God, by means of His Holy Spirit, endows people with the ability to do things they otherwise couldn't do. When we say He has spoken by the prophets, what we are affirming is that in giving us this word, that God gave the people who wrote these words, who once spoke these words and who transcribed them, who edited and collated them, those people who put it in the form that it was in when Jesus showed up and he had the law and the prophets and the writings as they are now. That the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was overseeing and superintending and enabling and empowering that process. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we know and we engage with and we have the Spirit the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, in a different way. If you read back into John chapter 14, you may remember this. When we went through John, and it took us 18 months, and that seemed like a long time to go through a book. John chapter 14, this is Jesus the night he's betrayed, the night before he goes off to his trial when he is with his disciples. He says to them, starting in verse 15, If you love me, then you're going to do what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. That is, the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives in you and will be in you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will. Because I live, you too will live. And on that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. And then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, the other guy who unfortunately was named Jewish, Judas, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? 
Jesus replied, look, if anybody loves me, he's going to obey my teaching. I said that before. Maybe you missed it. Once again, anybody loves me, they're going to do what I tell them to do. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. But the one who doesn't love me isn't going to obey my teaching. These words that you hear, they're not just something I'm making up. These come, to the, come from the Father who sent me. And I've spoken all of this while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And he's going to remind you of everything that I've said to you. Skipping ahead a bit. A few drinks later, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you now can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He's not going to speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. And that's why I set the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. This kind of intimate relationship that Jesus is describing here among the Father and the Son and the Spirit. In fact, later on in chapter 17, Jesus prays for his people that we would have the same kind of relational intimacy, the same kind of unity that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have. It's, it's that intense. This is a circle that we, in a sense, get to be drawn into. Paul picks this up in, in 1 Corinthians, which comes after Romans in your Bible, but was written before it. In fact, Paul probably wrote Romans while he was in Corinth, well after the events of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now, we're speaking God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has ever conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. There's stuff you're not going to get apart from the Spirit, Paul is saying. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. I mean, who among us knows the thoughts of a person except that person's spirit within him? In the same way, nobody knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And we haven't received the Spirit of the world. But we've received the Spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak. We're not speaking in words taught by human wisdom. I'm not making this up, Paul says, and I'm not getting it from somebody who did. We're speaking in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The person without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. 
And he can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The man of the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but he himself isn't subject to another man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Again, quoting Isaiah. But we, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. And so let's look in light of all of this. Let's look here at our text in Romans chapter 8 and see if we can make some sense despite all of the rhetorical games that Paul is playing with us here. Let's see if we can understand what he's trying to say to us. We'll begin in verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus... The life-giving Torah of the Spirit set me free from the death-dealing Torah of sin. There's another obnoxious place where Paul uses that word namas, which usually for Paul is going to mean Torah or law, but usually when he thinks of law, he's thinking about what? He's thinking about, you know, not Jesus, he's thinking about Torah. Except every once in a while, maybe he refers to that as a principle, or which is what namas can also mean. He re- this this part of, of Romans 8 really is annoying. Can I just ask for a little bit of sympathy here? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's, it's, an, it's annoying because it's so good and it's so beautiful and it's so important and it's so memorable, but it, it's also rhetorically irritating. Unless you, unless you really catch what Paul's doing. So, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the life-giving Torah of the Spirit set me free from the death-dealing Torah of sin. The Spirit was able to use Torah in a way that brings life to us. The sin using Torah to bring us to death. Once again, God, like Netflix, wins for what Torah was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh, God did. How did he do that? He did it by sending his own son in the very likeness of sinful humanity in order to be a sin offering. Or he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful man, and as for sin, he condemned it in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of Torah might be fully met in us. In order that the righteous requirements of Torah might be fully met in us, who cannot fully meet the righteous requirements of Torah. Can I get an amen? In order that somehow the righteous requirements of Torah might be fulfilled, might be fully met in us, In whom are those righteous requirements going to be fulfilled? Thank you. Yeah. God concentrates all of human sin in Jesus, who then fulfills all of the righteous requirements of Torah and nevertheless takes upon himself the penalty due to everybody who didn't. And in that way... That is how Paul, that is how God, Paul says, condemned sin in the flesh. That is, in Jesus' flesh. 
so that all those righteous requirements of Torah could be fully met in us who don't live according to the flesh anymore, but according to the Spirit. And those who live according to the flesh, as Zach talked about last week, they, they have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit, those who are, as Zach used the translation, those who are governed by the Spirit, they've got their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And by that, Paul is not saying that they are worthy contemplatives who are sitting off harmonically converging with crystals or something. No, this is the capital S Spirit People who are living according to the Spirit, who are governed by the Holy Spirit, are going to have their minds set on what the Holy Spirit desires. The mind of the flesh is death. The mind of the Spirit is life and peace. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. In fact, it cannot do so. By its very nature, the flesh is turned against God and is hostile to God. That's why those who are governed by the flesh can't please God, because it's not going to get you there. But you, Paul says, you, however, are governed not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ... Well, then obviously he doesn't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit, and there that probably is the slowercase spirit, alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Two things that I need you to note about what's going on here. You can even write this down in your Bibles. In this part of Romans 8, when Paul talks about the spirit living in you, he is using a word that means like living in your house, housed by you. So this is not something that is alien. This is not something that is outside. This isn't metaphorical. Paul is saying, no, the spirit of the living God is in you, like parked in the living room with a glass of iced tea, shaking it so you can hear that it's empty, so you can bring him some more. Don't try that in my house. I mean, I'll, I'll do it, but yeah. Anyway. The Spirit is living in you, meaning He has taken up residence. You, elsewhere, we read about the indwelling Spirit. Again, that word dwelling helps us. Indwelling meaning in the house. And the other key thing I need you to get about this passage, particularly these verses, 9 to 11, is that the if that Paul keeps throwing around here 
is entirely rhetorical for all who are in Christ. He's not saying you are controlled not by the flesh but by the spirit if you are really well connected to God. He's not saying that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you because you have prayed enough or read your Bible enough or tithed enough or been reasonably well-behaved or sung enough songs or clapped on the twos and fours, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead. We should probably make that like our Jewish friends talk about mitzvot, you know, fulfilling the mitzvah, fulfilling commandment. We should make learning to clap, I think, a commandment sometime. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, Paul is not saying that, you know, if you manage this, if you somehow pull this off, I don't know, many of you do, but, you know, this is sort of advanced living in the spirit, advanced Jesus stuff. If you can get really good at this, then you're going to have this great opportunity of he who raised, raised Christ from the dead giving life to your meat space through his spirit who lives in you. It's not what Paul is saying at all. You could read this and maybe you should, or at least think of it this way, as you, however, are controlled not by the flesh but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you and he does. And if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, which does not refer to you, he doesn't belong to Christ. Obviously, that's not you. But if Christ is in you, and he is, your body's dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, and he is, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Yes, he really does. The spirit is not an optional add-on. The indwelling spirit is part and parcel of being Christ's. Being a follower of Jesus, being a believer, having given ourselves over to his lordship means that we have the spirit in us right now, all the time. We have the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity dwelling within us. And as we're going to talk about over the next couple weeks, that has some implications. But what I don't want us to miss as we go into that is the fact, not the opinion, but the fact that those who are in Christ, those who are disciples of Jesus, those who are Christians, have the spirit of the living God dwelling within them. Let's pray. Lord God, we do believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We pray that where we 
are faint in our belief, you would strengthen us. Or we have difficulty believing, you would overcome those difficulties. We know that you exerted your mighty power through your spirit when you raised Jesus from the dead. And so we trust that nothing we have to get in the way of that will be too difficult for you to overcome. We pray that as we continue studying in Romans 8, that we would know more and more the reality of your spirit living within us and that we would learn to walk in the spirit and unlearn how to walk in the flesh. Pray that this would be to the edification of your church, to the increase of your glory, the furthering of your kingdom. We ask this in the name of our mighty Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.